This is Lead with a Question. We're so afraid to ask the question because we want to look smart. Like people say they hire smart people. And then those smart people just end up pontificating on what they think the boss wants to hear rather than actually figuring out what's actually really what they need. And so you end up doing less smart work because you're not really willing to ask the right questions or to go and actually have a conversation with somebody who may be more senior than you. But seniority doesn't mean that they have all the answers. Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. Today, we talk with a leader whose sometimes impermanent childhood circumstances set him up to ask lots of questions. Whether living in three different countries as a kid, or encountering a toxic boss at his first job, or figuring out the best way to parent, questions have been both the fuel for and the mission of his journey. So it might not surprise you that today, we'll consider the following. How can great questions challenge the status quo in positive ways? A conversation with Ronell Hugh on this episode of Lead with a Question. You know, I always like to start with this idea of curiosity, you know, curiosity around people. And I think for me, that formed when I was a young kid. I lived in three countries by the time I was 10. So I grew up in Germany, lived there for almost eight years, moved to North Carolina, um, lived in North Carolina for about two or three years. My dad's from there. He was in the military in Germany. And then we moved to England when I was 10. And my mom's British, but she grew up in Jamaica, immigrated to England when she was 10. And so it was interesting as I think about, think back to that, I think that created in me this, this desire maybe, or ability to just really be able to be curious about people and have a true desire to connect with people at the core level, you know, meaning them as a person, not them as an employee or them as a person who does this job. And it's interesting because I think for me, that has allowed me to, you know, focus on people differently. Um, and I, and not that I'm perfect at it, you know, even in my family life, you know, focusing on the individual, not like what they're doing or how they should be doing it. But it is something that I find of utmost importance. It's so critical. And that shaped me and just kind of who I am. Now, other things that I think have shaped me as well. Like I grew up in a family, we were pretty poor as a family, even though I lived in these three different countries, um, it was by fluke. You know, people always ask me like, what was your dad doing to allow you to move so frequently? And I always would say evading the law. 
um, which probably is not a good joke, but as, an, as I've gotten older, but my point is, is like, we, you know, that also helped shape me, you know, having grown up, you know, there appeared in my life where I, um, when I lived in England, we were homeless for about three or four months living in a homeless shelter. And those types of experience help you to value things a little bit differently. They help you to value, you know, really the important things. Like when you don't have a home, you're sharing like residence with people that you don't know eating in a communal eating space. Um, that provides a different perspective than typically the norm of what we see in our lives today. I think that, that fundamentally, you know, for me grounded me. And I would have to say, I know this is not a religious type of, of uh, podcast, but for me, religion plays a heavy role in that piece of it. Um, it, it is fundamental to uh, my ability, not just to be curious about people, but just to remain focused on people and their truest identity and my belief. And so um, that's probably like the groundwork. Right. And I think starting there and then, you know, obviously there's a lot of things that you have happen in your life, but for me, it was, you know, I did get a bachelor's degree at BYU, um, and got did it in communications and my first job out of college actually really helped shape me, um, in terms of like, when I had the opportunity to lead people and to work with other groups and to be a leader, what to do. My, my first boss out of college, um, was not the best example of leadership of collaboration, of building team culture environment to, to invite, or even to, you know, invigorate creativity in individuals. He was very authoritative, very demeaning, um, very vulgar in his, in his language, um, and very belittling. And so all the things that I realized that I never wanted to be when I had the opportunity to lead teams. And so that literally laid the, so my childhood growing up the way I did about people and countries and culture, and then having that experience as my first job out of college working for Rail Salt Lake really built the foundation for me that to really focus on people differently. You know, because much of all of this is about people, you know, about how we treat people, how we see them, how we find ways to um, have conversations and to learn about each other, then to, that, which creates better understanding. And so I'll start there with those kind of being the two, probably as I think about this topic, like the two things that really helped shape me. Um, I guess two areas in my life that help shape me. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing that run out. It's like, it's a great, uh, kind of setting the stage. You know, I, I'm curious, right. Uh, how, you know, how you took those experiences and, you know, because some people, right. May have gone through different things like that and said, you know, wow, it's, this is, you know, this is really hard. It's, it's, you know, I'm going to stay in the Valley. Right. But how did you go from like, Hey, I'm going to turn this into something, something that makes like even the part with, with the boss, right. Where it's like, Hey, this is, you know, authoritative and either I can become like that, or I'm just going to sit in my struggle and just be angry about it. But to be able to propel yourself forward and say, you know what, um, I'm going to do different. What was it inside you that kind of catalyzed, you know, the force of energy to move forward and to get to where you, where you have now? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the thing that I think about, first and foremost for me is when you've had those grounding experiences where you're, you know, you have to really think about who you really are. I mean, I was 12 and I was in a homeless shelter. So <laughs> it's kind of one of those things where you're like, gosh, as a 12 year old having to think about, is this my identity? You know, is this who I am? And then starting to realize, well, it can only go up from here, <laughs> which is really kind of sad to say it that way, but it really is the truth. Right. And it has changed my perspective. And I think spirituality was a key part of that. You know, um, I, we had always been religious as a family. 
Um, spirituality was key for us. Christian Catholic as a child growing up in Germany, went to Southern Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Jehovah's Witnesses in, England, in the U.S. And then for a two-year period, and when we, leave the, when we moved to England, we did not have a religion. And then we were homeless. And then after that experience, my dad was like, we need to find religion again and have spirituality in our life. And that grounding was fundamental, I think, in continuing the rise, right? Um, because I believe fully that our identities are more than what we see um, around us today. Like our identities aren't, you know, the money we make, the houses we live in, the cars we drive, the jobs we have, the titles we have, that's not our truest identity. Right. Um, I think our truest identities are heaven sent and he, he's given us that identity no matter, you know, where we sit or where we're from. And so that, that was a foundational for me. And I always had that belief, like me being what I believe as a child of God, which I think is important for me, helped me to really reflect on, okay, that is always going to be true. So no matter what, I can have the worst days or the best days. That is fundamental. But then being able to take that and see other people in that light, you know, so no matter, doesn't mean they, they don't have to be the same, have spirituality. They could be atheists, but my vision and view of them, seeing them in that way. Right. So having that experience, you know, coming out of school, going to my first job and having an experience, what motivated me, I've always been motivated to just to be, to think differently and to see like, even though I have the experience with my manager at that time, uh, it did have an impact on me. Obviously, as you can imagine, as a young uh, professional, probably uh, definitely impacted me negatively, but I took that as motivation to say like, well, where do I go to actually grow and where can I go to actually get the training and to learn and spread my wings? And, and I've always been that way. I don't let, and part of that comes from the experience as a child having, you know, but also then to saying, okay, where's the path? What did I do to change this? What can I control? Because one thing I realized early on, I can't control others, but I control what my response is. And that has helped me throughout my career. Like I can't control what my executives say, what my peers say, but how I engage with them is how I can control is what I can control. And so if that engagement with somebody else can be positive, one that is actually is inclusive, that creates an environment where they feel like they can be open and candid. You know, I think much of what I see um, in, in the world, whether it's professionally or personally, is, is it, we, we tend to be very passive as people, right? We, I always use the analogy of like, if you think about a buzzard and there's a carcass on the ground, you know, buzzards circle around it. And they're each looking at each other until one of somebody actually wants to go in on a peck at the carcass. Well, we do that in our business world and personal and professional lives all the time. No one wants to have the open, honest conversation, right? They, they want to circle it. No one wants to go down and just actually peck at it and actually just have the hard conversation. And I do the opposite. I'm like, hey, I tell people up front, the way I like to operate is just, is just to be open. Open to my, be very transparent, open to my communications, talk about the hard things. And let's try to work through those hard things, but in a meaningful way where it's not personal. I'm not saying that you're a horrible person. I'm a horrible person, but we together can actually do something great. So let's focus our energies there. And, and then we don't have to be passive. We can actually have a really constructive conversation that allows us to do great work, right? And to be our best selves, whatever we're doing, whether that's like me coaching when I coach and coaching with other people or me doing work um, in my profession. I think that that philosophy and that mindset uh, can be leveraged no matter what the environment is. Love that. Yeah. What do you think that direct approach has done for the teams you've been part of, the people that you've led and other areas in your life? You know, I think, um, my, you know, I think I might've shared this experience with Chris and Ian. 
So after uh, I was the first person to get a bachelor's, by the way, the first person to go to grad school. So that kind of shows you my drive, my driven nature. It's just like, well, I don't know any different. Nobody in my family had done it before. So um, when I went to business school, after business school, I went to uh, Walmart and I loved my experience at Walmart. Great company, great people, learned a ton. But it's interesting. I remember having this one experience where my boss um, said to me, like, hey, our, our, our executive wants us to do this. And I was like, and I, in my mind, I was like, well, I don't have enough clarity on what he's actually looking for. And because I'm closer to the business than he is, I don't know if he's actually thinking about it in the right way. And so my, my boss was like, well, let's not go ask him and get clarity. Let's just do this. And then we'll let him respond. And that's just, just not, doesn't work for me because I can't just make up something and then give it to you. Then I'm just been running a loop, right? Like I just waiting. So I was like, I can't do that. And so my boss was like, don't do it. And I was like, oh, I can't do that. So I just went and talked to our executive anyway. And I sat Marty down and I said, Marty, Hey, look, I hear you're looking for this. Can you give me a little bit more about what you're looking for and what is this going to be used for? Right. And so he elaborated even more. And I was like, Oh, I think what you're actually asking for is this, because this will do this, this and this. And he was like, I think you're right. So I was able to go do that. And I think that, you know, that kind of points to the idea of the directness, right? I think too often we're afraid to do that. Like we look at, and I've been in a lot of companies, worked for Walmart, Microsoft, Adobe, and now Qualtrics, um, worked for HP, worked in sports. And we're so afraid to ask the question because we want to look smart. Like people say well, they hire smart people. And then those smart people just end up pontificating on what they think the boss wants to hear rather than actually figuring out what actually really what they want to hear and what they need. And so you end up doing less smart work because you're not really willing to ask the right questions or to go and actually have a conversation with somebody who may be more senior than you. Um, but seniority doesn't mean that they, that they have all the answers. That's why they're coming to you as an employee to actually find out. Right. And I think so that directness, I think, has helped me to kind of figure out ways to work with people and have conversations that are meaningful, purposeful and that lead to the outcome and actually produces the best work possible. Right. I, I think. And then to take that to teams. Right. When I first post, you know, previous to well, postgraduate school, uh, when I started managing a team, I was at Adobe. And the first thing I did was like, I said to them, Hey, I want to build a, a culture where you feel like you can say and do what you need to, to drive the business. But in order for me to do that, I need to know each of you personally and what you what drives you, what motivates you, what inspires you, like put the work aside. I don't care about what you do and kind of your functional expertise. I want to hear about you as a person. Now that may be uncomfortable. That may not be right for some people because they feel like they come to work and they don't want to bring their personal to work, but it's pretty obvious to me that your personal, I don't know the percentage, but has a massive impact <laughs> on your professional life. Right. And, uh, and, and so for me, it's, I, I start there with every team that I have and say, look, what does this mean? And so I say like, Hey, the type of environment that I want to have is open and collaborative and transparent. And what is open and tra collaborative and transparent looks like? Well, I want you to feel comfortable enough, bring things to me and being able to talk about them, especially when I've done something wrong. And they're like, wait a second, what does that mean? I was like, well, if you hear me, if I do something wrong, I want you to call me on it. Don't hold it in. Don't get frustrated by it because I'm a human being. I am as just, I'm as much prone to making mistakes as anybody else. But in our business world, we built this mentality that if you're executive, then you've passed all your mistake making phases of your so career. So true. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden, like you've reached the pinnacle, you don't make any mistakes. And so you're now the, the real authority on everything that, how did this you've arrived? Yeah. You've, you've arrived. And it's, and it's just, it's false, 
Right. And so when I make that statement and then I follow through on it, you know, I could share an example in a minute, but when you follow through on it, people start to realize, no, this guy's really, he means this. Right. And the other thing is like, I've, when I've created teams, I tell them, Hey, we're all part of this together. So what are I, we set the vision together. We figure out what we're going to do together, how we're actually going to drive the business together. And what that does is when we align on those things as a team, I said, we're team members. I hate, I hate people calling me a manager or their boss. Because that's not true. Like we're team members. We work together. I learn from them. They learn from me. It's mutually beneficial. Right. Um, and part of that comes from a book I read called The Alliance by Reed Hoffman. And I can't remember who the other co-author was, but it's a, it's a really phenomenal book where it talks about, you know, you have to figure out what motivates the person and create an alliance. They want something from you. You want something from them. But ultimately, if you can create a better, more personal alliance, then there's motivation for you to thrive and work together. But what ends up happening in these environments is that people are bought in. When you create those types of cultures and environments and, and team cultures, people are ready to do whatever you need to be successful. Uh, and it creates an openness where they feed off each other. Like my teams get to the point where they are evaluating each other's work. So before it gets to me, I'll have to look. I can say, well, does somebody else look at it? And then when I look at it, it's like, okay, this looks great. Maybe change this. Or here's some other perspective that you may not have that I recently got. And they're off and running, but I allow them to be very, very autonomous in how they do it, which opens that up. And it's actually an interesting thing that comes from, I think, um, which book is that? It's an Adam Grant book called The Originals. Um, and I love that book because he talks about how if you, if you can find people who have original ways of thinking, which I think fits along with what we're talking about with Bravecore, like how you're being creative, when you can find that, it frustrates them. They can't think, they can't do the creative work they need to actually deliver on what you need. So my whole goal is just to provide that room and to let them do that and then provide them paths to be successful. And it, and it, and I, and I found it works, right. Um, and it creates the right type of meaningful relationships, even to this day where every team that I've had since then, you know, we still like, they reach out, we talk because I believe you're creating friendships. It's just not a, it's just not a professional relationship. If you do it right, you can create lifelong friendships. That's right. That endure companies and your professional life. Ronell, um, one thing that stood out to me as you're describing, you know, your leadership approach and your work experiences is this principle that we, um, we embrace called create context, right? So much of the world is screaming, you know, in a professional sense to create content. Yeah, everyone's got to create content, post, post, post on LinkedIn, in the workplace. You know, it's it sounds like that Walmart story you shared. People were just cycling content and perhaps there was no meaning tied to certain things. But when you're brave enough to ask the questions, to have the difficult conversations with with the desire to to understand, right? You're able to create context. I think that's so such a great, you know, example. And, and so far it sounds like something that you've truly embodied in your work experience. I feel like most of the world, you know, they, they're in this consumer mode. They're not even in a creator mode yet, you know, at the, at the default it's, it's con consume. And so, you know, what are the things that we're consuming? You know, like, um, a lot of folks go to work and it's rinse and repeat, you know, it's just having the same experience day by day. And, you know, they feel like the tasks that they're doing are helping the organization move the needle, but perhaps their own life, they're unfulfilled, you know? So, um, along those lines, you know, from a leadership standpoint, 
you know, how, how are you, it sounds like you're very grounded with your methods. How can you, or how do you extract the best potential out of your people? How do you inspire them? What things do you lean on as a leader? You know, inspiring people to me is kind of the first thing. You know, I think generally leaders see an outcome and they're like, well, who can I get to do that? You know, and it's, it's fascinating because you see it often and I'm like, well, that's not really what you want because inspiring people isn't about what they can do for you. For me, I literally, I spend time sitting down and looking at and asking myself with it. Like I was, I've been doing it now at Qualtrics. I've been here for just close to 60 days. You know, the first thing I do is a kind of a, a listening tour. I ask people five questions, I think. Um, first question is, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your background. I want to learn about you, your family, you know, and why Qualtrics. Tell me about what you're focused on in your, in your job functionally. Like, what do you do? You know, tell me about some of the challenges that we have as a company. But, the, and the, but I also ask them to think about it in terms of challenges that we recognize as opportunities that we can actually improve. You know, and then the last thing is like, how do they, how do they define success? You know, and it's interesting as you ask that question, you learn some very critical things. And, you, and, and even in the types of my leadership, that's kind of me. It's like, hey, tell me about yourself. Tell me what motivates you. Tell me what drives you, you know. Um, and quickly you start to learn about people's motivations. You know, and if you care about people, if you're curious about people and you want them to thrive and to be their best and most creative selves and to do good work, you know, you have to understand those levels of details about an individual. And frankly, you know, I think this, what we see today in the great resignation or great reshuffling is a manifestation of that. It's a manifestation of decades of managers just looking at people as cogs in a system and then saying, Hey, I'm going to get the most out of you. Then I'll just turn you out and find somebody else. And now the opposite is happening, you know, and now the opposite is happening where, you know, we're being left with trying to find people to work and do jobs, but they're like, no, I'm just going to go figure out something on my own. It, but it, it, and it's interesting because I think the leadership, like you could talk to a lot of folks that I work with or work for me and they realize that I truly had care about them as an individual, even to this point. Like I had a friend, I had a member of my team once who said, I'm looking at taking this job. And I was like, well, what can I do to help you? And he was shocked. And I was like, well, listen, it's not about me. Like, yeah, like most managers intent is like, well, I need to keep you because you do great work and it makes me look better. I'm like, it's not about me. You know, if I'm a good leader, I can find somebody else who can come in. They may not be you. They may not be able to do the same job, but I want you to help me find your replacement. And it was fascinating because that person went on to do a different job, left product marketing, go to product management. But he also helped me to hire his replacement who has been exceptional at his job. But it was a, it was a mind shift because it was like, what do you need? Right. You need this to be your best self. You feel like making a change. And I always tell my employees, and this may be sacrilege, if you will, within companies, but I always tell my employees, if you're looking to leave the company, let me know. Allow me to help you so that you can find the best job possible. Yeah. So, like, what, the themes that you're sharing are so powerful and yet so simple and yet so counter to traditional, right, business. I'm curious, like, in addition to the inspiration you're talking about, which is actually tied to purpose, how do these managers or leaders or people that want to lead or influence, you know, the movement, you know, of the future, how do they make this shift? I find it fascinating. Cause I think, you know, the generations before us were very, very about like top down leadership. 
Right. And that was the focus. It was, you know, and, and typically like my, it's funny to talk to my in-laws cause they're like, man, you changed job a lot. So I'm like, actually no, <laughs> no more than most people, my, my generation, <laughs> you know, but it was this whole idea of like, you just go in, you put your head down, you're dedicated to a job. You, you know, you are deferential to your leaders, you know, and by the way, I will say this, um, as a person, as a, as a black person in the business world, that's much of what people of color feel is that you have to be deferential. You can't open your mouth. And at some point along the road, I decided like, no, like I'm, I have a, a, a deep knowledge and expertise. I've been around the block. I should not have to feel like I have to be deferential about my skills and my expertise. Right. But I think many of us defer and just like, now nah, I'm not going to worry about it. But I think given where today is, and I've always been a purpose driven person, like, um, work is not my identity. You know, work allows me to fulfill what I believe is my true identity, which is outside of my work. Like I do great stuff in my job. And I think the most fulfilling thing out of my work is the people I get to, to meet with. So I think, how do people shift? You know, one of the things I really enjoyed at my time at Microsoft, I think Satya Nadella is one of those leaders that I just have an utmost respect for and who, who gets it, right? Who understands the power of, you know, we talk about, he, he's very keen on empathy and emotional intelligence. And people always talk about emotional intelligence being this flippant word that's like, how do you justify that? How do you value that? And I was actually talking to a really good friend of mine. We were at Disneyland a couple months ago. And I said... I think the truest manifestation of emotional intelligence is emotional maturity. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how do you actually act? How are you treating people? Like emotional intelligence is the attribute. That's right. Maturity of that is actually you actually doing it and how you treat people and the things that you say and do in your daily life and being willing to say that you were wrong. Right. Like, like leaders today are so, are so caught in a world where they have to be right all the time where they actually don't get room to say that they're wrong. You know, one of the things that I learned is like as when I was leading teams and have been leading teams, I had this experience. I remember being in a meeting and I said that this person on my team would be taking this on and doing this. And I looked over at him and I saw in his face that he was shocked. And I was like, oh, wait, I made a mistake. So after I talked to him and we had this conversation and he said, hey, this made me this was wrong of you. You should have talked to me first. And this is that that environment that I built because he felt like he could do that. Right. And so he had this conversation with me and I was like, hey, I apologize. And then we had the conversation about, hey, I really would need you to, I really would like you to do this. Here's what I'm looking for. Would you be willing to do that and take on this extra assignment? And he was like, yeah, totally. But then I followed that up with an email to everybody else who was in the meeting originally and said, listen, I made this mistake. I called myself out. So right? rare. And <laughs> it, yeah, and it's, and, it's, and it's humbling, but it, like that ability to be able to admit when you've done something wrong, it's rare. It's your point, And it's rare in the business world. You know, most people will stand by whatever they say, even though they might have been wrong. You know, and I think part, part of that for me is this like Carol Dweck, when she talks about the growth mindset, that's a very fixed mindset. It's like, I'm going to be this way. I'm going to do this. Whereas like if in order to Chris, what your question is like, people need to have a growth mindset if they really want to change. They have to be able to evaluate what they've done, how they've done it. Is it, can they do it better? Are they willing to do it better? And then make strides to make that shift. Right. And I think that's just a humbling experience to be able to just acknowledge that personally and then being willing to do it. Yeah, I love the themes that you're tapping into because, and, and it's how people not just show up, but who they fundamentally are at the core. Um, but being brave and true to that, uh, it shifts things. And and there's something about too what you said uh, about uh, you know kind of how leaderships the perception suddenly starts to become the reality, like the fiction of what a leader should be starts to become their reality and other people's reality, right? And I think about like. 
not to harp on people, but like the, the contrast, right? Between <laughs> in Satya, I'd agree, like phenomenal leader. And you know, there's a whole story about empathy and, you know, his, you know, his role as a father, right? In his home and like mm-hmm. with his son, how he learned empathy and brought that to his experience. And I'll tell you, like on the outside, as an outsider, just experiencing Microsoft products from one point in time where I, I felt like these are clinical. This is like being in a hospital. Like granted, it has a purpose, right? <laughs> like using yeah. the tools, but from that to, wow, this is intuitive. Like these feel like kind of that app, that Apple experience. Like I, I love, I, I enjoy using these tools and it was about empathy, right? It was that pervade, like that pervading the culture and what a contrast from, you know, a guy, <laughs> you know, Balmer up on the stage screaming developers like 50 times and sweating, you know, just like, you know, just sweating everywhere. And you're like, wow, like that is such a contrast there's a, a story I, I love um, in Brandon Sanderson's writings. Uh, he, he shares in uh, The Way of Kings, there's a, um, they talk about this king uh, that the people in this town, they're all making assumptions about what, you know, because this king was a very, you know, tough, fear driven ruler, right? And so they go around, they, they say, oh, well, the king would say this, like, so just be careful, right? And they go around the town, and this is kind of how the conversation goes don't do that because because the king wouldn't, he wouldn't be okay with it. And, you know, come to find out, they go to the castle, try to find the king and he's been dead for like years, right? (laughs) In the castle. And, but the whole perception of what he, what he would want or the expectation of fear was there. And yet they could have operated differently the whole time. Right. And I think there's something about what you're saying that, Hey, these doors are already open. Right. And why not be an empathic, you know, connected, humble leader? Because people, it's also a breath of fresh air, right? I'm sure that email you sent were like, wow, like, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't, you know, because the fear to your point about the vultures before it's like, well, people are, why are they waiting? Well, they're waiting because they're saying in their mind, well, that if I do something, it would be a career limiting move. Right. Or this is the death of my career. And like, actually it's not. And in fact, what if it's the opposite, especially now, you know, the kind of connection between heart and mind, it's like people do expect a lot more pathos. And if you're real and yes, you have to be competent, but that doesn't take away from it. Those can coexist, right? It's not mutually exclusive. You can, you know, and by the way, the most competent people we know of, or we've experienced are also the most open and humble. They tend to be because they know they don't have all the answers. Uh, so I, I love what you're sharing about that. Like, I think it's so spot on. To your point, Chris, it's actually, you know, it leads me to one of my other favorite books that kind of is, has informed my management style. And it's, you know, Liz Wiseman, many of you may know her. She's great, phenomenal. Her book, Multipliers, really informed me along with the book Alliance. But the idea of being, you know, a multiplier or diminisher, those two words really do help you see like what type of people. And, and for me, when I first read that book, I just was like, how can I be a multiplier of somebody's talents and creativity? Like a diminisher, it's all about them. You know, when you're a diminisher, you make it about you, about how you look, about how you come across, how successful you are. If you're a multiplier, that's the last thing you worry about. You're worried about how your people are growing and developing, how they're creating the next best things, how they're having the freedoms to think and actually to think strategically before they actually execute things. And that's really, for me, it was massive for me in my in my growth and development, uh, you know, as I think about how I cultivate teams. Because... 
that's the purpose. When you create the right cultures and environments, you're hoping that they can start to multiply themselves, right? You're just giving, you're, you're establishing almost like the soil and the fertile soil that they need to actually grow, right? You're making it possible. Um, and I think a lot of times as leaders, we, we don't realize that we're having either a positive or negative effect. We always assume we're having a positive effect, a positive effect, excuse me. But unless you're willing to be open and create those environments where people can actually tell you, right? Like I was there at Microsoft when I moved from Balmer to Satya Nadella. I mean, the shift, like it was like a scale shifting, like you could totally, like it was, you could feel the shift, right? And that took some period of time, but Cultures are always that way. And the problem I think a lot of companies have is they've created cultures over decades, you know, and, and then when you start to think about it, you, I'm the person that asks the question, you know, I always tell, and I think I was telling you gentlemen this earlier, like when we met the phrase, I drink the Kool-Aid that is used to imply that I'm hundred percent. And no matter what you say, I'm going to be there and do it. Well, I tell people I split the Kool-Aid into two, two cups, 50% I'm all in the other 50% I'm questioning everything. And it's not questioning to argue or to debate, but I'm trying to, I'm being curious. I'm trying to understand why do we do it this way? Like when I've seen whatever it is, we processes and policies that we have in the company. I'm like, well, why are we doing it? And somebody telling me somebody 15 years ago created this. I'm like, so you mean to tell me that in 15 years, nothing has changed. (laughs) Nothing has changed about the company internally and externally to the company about the people that you're hiring today, you know, nothing has changed for us to change how we do things. And people typically will sit on, well, this is just how we do it. I'm like, that response is, is the response that allows me to think, okay, we actually don't really care about being better <laughs> because you're saying that's just how we do it. <laughs> Ronell, one of the, uh, the main themes we see with most of our guests is we've all had some type of experience of feeling like a misfit and your story that you've described, you know, this past hour has been a great example of how being a misfit doesn't mean that you have to be a contrarian, doesn't mean you have to be avant-garde and fight everything and every system and every leader. But what's remarkable and what I'm truly impressed about your stories that you've shared is the fact that you know, you've been able to maintain a sense of groundedness with your identity, perhaps feeling like a misfit in certain environments, which you've shared, but you found a way to contribute to those cultures, to, to inspire people, um, to, to make those deeper connections. And I think um, that's one of those themes that we enjoy with these guests is, you know, this notion of misfit energy misfit experiences. Um, you know, we all are a little disgruntled with the status quo and the doubling down that, you know, we've experienced, uh, in our work environments, but, you know, to see how you've handled yourself and how you approach people and the work and the, the movements, the missions that you're engaged in, it's, it's really incredible. So thank you for, for sharing those things. Yeah, I just want to add to that too because um, you've always embodied this this stuff that you're talking about. It's not just um, you know, hey, here's some leadership ideas, here's some advice, right. um, and you've carried that right. And uh, what you shared about you know being a father too, like what a powerful concept, right, for anybody in their lives, you know, um, to have that level of humility, discipline, um, you know, focus 
to say, you know, yeah, I mean, that's that kind of, um, you know, we need more of that. Right. I mean, as you're saying, I'm like, wow, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people I'm sure listen, like, I'd love to work for somebody like that. Right. Um, I'd vote for somebody for like, like that. Right. Like I mean, you have, and you know, one of the greatest uh, tributes for someone, or I think honors, uh, it was said at, um, Stephen Covey's funeral, uh, was, you know, his, his kids said, you know, he's, he's one, right. When he shows up, what you see in public, that's how we've experienced him. Right. And, you know, and, and what you said about, you know, and I think that being our kind of part of the test of our lives, right. Is how do we show up in all these contexts in a way that is true. Right. And granted, as, as Ian said, you know, the, you know, that notion of misfits, we also believe in that, but it's interesting because, you know, what constitutes conformity and what constitutes nonconformity, right? If you look at like how Thoreau and Emerson thought about this, it was like, well, maybe it's not what we think it is, right? <laughs> and, you know, at, at Apple, we had this notion, it was not just think different, but the next level of that was, well, let's work different together, right? And what if you have this perfect, infinite variety and you have this sense of kind of perfect unity where you can bring these things together so you have you know, yeah, we can all be misfit. We can all be originals, right? True to our truest identity. And we have a purpose to serve in this world that we can bring, um, and shine that light. And in such a way too, that it, you know, it, it has a, a beautiful pattern because everybody can do this you know, at once. Uh, so I think we really appreciate that about you and, uh, you embody this really. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about the idea of being a misfit because that could have a, a very negative connotation, right? And, and I think typically people will see that. In the reality, anybody that has created something has been a misfit. Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, you know, you can go through the list of anybody, you know, go back when anybody was created. Like, I love actually watching some of the early stories of like when Kellogg's was created. I think it's on like history channel where they do some of these documentaries or docu-series. And it's like, those guys, those, all those, they were all misfits. They saw something and, and you have, and it's interesting. I think we typically, we want compliance, right? Compliance gets us through, but really making game changing shifts, you know, requires you to think differently. It requires you to be somewhat of a misfit. And I think that's what always funny. Like, you know, I'm not a, I don't have a Tesla. I'm not a big Tesla guy. Actually, I, I don't mind them, but it's like, it's interesting. People are like, everybody's like now like focus in from an innovation. I'm like, how do we, how do we build EVs like Tesla? And it's like, you know, same thing with the Netflix. We see all these different things have happened, you know, that people like every company that has done something that's innovative is because they were willing to think different, not just think different, but act different. Cause you can't just have the thought you actually have to act on it. Right. And that's, that's the skill in of itself. <laughs> it's like a two-step process. Think differently and then act on that to actually drive it, you know, but I, you know, it's, it's humbling, but also rewarding in my mind to be somewhat of a misfit, you know, and, and, and it, and it can sound from this. I have, there's no, there's no, I'm not trying to be like somebody and there is no path that I see. Does that make sense? Like I, I didn't grow up in a world where there's like, take step one, step two, step three, step four, and you'll be here. Like I look at the world as it's an unlimited path. And so I have to create what that looks like. Yeah. And I think most of the time people don't have that liberty to do that. They feel confined and constrained. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And then, you know, Tesla too. I, I, I have appreciation for them. Um, 
you know, I, I don't have one, but yeah. I, and you said earlier, so, you know, we're talking about, and you just said it with about paths that so they can be different. Right. And something I think we talked earlier about like titles and the pursuit of title, but that's not, you know, the future. And, you know, um, I, I was, I saw this post, it was like a meme. It was like, um, <laughs> this, this lady and her friends were, they were, they were, they have this approach where somebody's got a Tesla, you know, sometimes this, it could be like, Hey, there's these status symbols. Like, Hey, this is, this is cool. And, the, and they'd say like, Oh, that's a nice Toyota. The person's like, <laughs> like their response, like it's, it's not a Toyota, right? Like I got to explain. Right. Um, and then they have this other thing where they do, they're like, you know, somebody like, you know, because there's these kind of symbols, like, Hey, I went to Harvard. They're like, Oh, is that like a, uh, you know, community college? Like, <laughs> and of course they don't love that response, you know? Um, and I'm not advocating like, Hey, you know, you know, mess with people, but uh, it's just funny because we stack all of this sense of import, right. And perception of, of impact into these boxes. Right. And, and, you know, one thing I, I loved uh, uh, about my experience at Apple was like, no, there's no box, right. What if, yeah, we don't have to box ourselves in and, you know, you could be from any background, right? Any experience, any college, you know, drive any car, right? We had executives there at the highest levels that would drive, yeah, a Toyota or a Honda Accord, right? They're getting paid crazy amounts of money, you know, hundreds of millions. And or and, they, and they're just like, I'm just a, just a dude, like I'm, I'm trying to, you know, impact and change the world in my own way. And I think, you know, you're, you've tapped into something with, you know, how you, uh, approach this and you're right. Like the misfit thing, you know, I think we, what we see to your point about creation. Yeah. It's definitely at the roots of that is people saying, Hey, I don't have to fit into this, um, in, in the traditional sense. And that that's also the roots of co-creation because then if you say, Hey, they don't have to either. Right. And so your approach, you know, with your teams, it's like, well, Hey, we're, we're all at the table here because, you know, you have an original voice and I value that as much as I value my own. Right. Or maybe more, right. At least for the purposes of this conversation, because I'm in listening mode and that is a shock to the system, right. Of people, but what a powerful thing, right. To just ignite and catalyze and, and move people in the direction of, you know, where they want to go. And I, I, all we can see, I mean, this is, we're talking about the next 10, 30 years, right. The future, right. Is definitely, I mean, there's wisdom in, in that, in that, in that spirit of co-creation, right. Connecting with people and, you know, building things together without ego. Yeah. You know, I was reading this book, it's called, it was called the world for kindness. And I had some stat in there that we've gotten less kinder as a world, which is, which is interesting because you would think we've had more innovation, more newness in that way, more ways to connect because of, with all of that, not because of it, I think some of it is because of it, but with all of that, we've become less kinder. And it's because at the root of it, we forget about people, right? At the root of it is this whole idea of succumbing to, you know, to your point, you know, my title, like what I drive, what I look like, you know, I, I had a hard time. I just, I bought a BMW recently and I have a hard time when I first bought it. Cause I was like, this is, this is why. And then my wife and my mom were like, no, you've earned this. Like, think of where you came from to where you've arrived at. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a symbol for me. Now I also grew up in Germany. So German cars mm-hmm. are all the, the ones that we consider nice here. Mercedes, Audis, VWs, you know, BMWs. Like that's this, that's like an everyday Hyundai, yeah. <laughs> if you will, in Germany. But my point is, it was like, it, it was hard for me to digest. And it was more of a, 
Like, I don't want people. And it's funny because the where I live, people are like, Oh, I saw you bought you bought this car. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, why do you care? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's for me. And I'm do, doing this for me not to kind of be a symbol. But then I remember what you just said, reminded me of that. Cause it is that, you know, it's interesting. I, I often tell people that I re- that reach out to me that like trying to get mentoring. And I said, there's three types of people I see in the world. And, and this has been my simplification of it. So it's not even statistically, you know, validated at all. But as I've been in business, there's people who care about title, care about money, who care about learning. And typically the people that care about money, and I hate to say this, are doing something for the wrong reason. <laughs> I mean, Enron, right? Like you're talking <laughs> a lot of examples, right? <laughs> um, the people who need through titles, you know, it's not all for me bad, but it all depends on why is that title important to you? For me, I recognize for titles, it's all about, I want more learning and scope, right? But that's different every company. Every title is different every company, but we put so much value in that. So I've always actually made career decisions. And I tell people it's off of learning. Where can I go and learn more that adds to, to who I am as a person? And, and, and my skill sets. And then if a title comes along with that, great. I actually never have to worry about money because that's not actually what I'm looking for. But funny enough, you know what comes along when you're actually looking for learning? The financial rewards. Because people see your inherent talents and skills. But it's funny, the thing that we teach people to value most are money and title. <laughs> well, Ronel, this has been awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to share? You know, I think the last thing I want to share is it's it's fascinating to me how massive an opportunity we have to really change and shift what it means to be a leader today, you know, and in a lot of ways we shouldn't be thinking as leader as in one, we should be creating leaders as in broad set, right? If, if we, if we do it right, you should have a generation of people, you know, that, that, really are driving newness and creativity in a, in a way that inspires not just themselves, but others. Right. But you're also creating in my mind, environments and cultures where people are truly thriving. Right. And thriving for me, it's, it's fascinating. I separate thriving from business success. For some reason, the business world, we we connect those two for somebody to be thriving. It means the business is generating top and bottom line. And yeah, that's the point of a business, Right. But if you separate those two and look at somebody as like, how are they thriving as an individual? Do you see them being their best based upon what you know about them? Because ultimately, if you can do that, you've allowed somebody to be at their, their, their best selves where they can actually create in the best way possible. We're also at this transition stage where those who've been leading for a while are now opting out. But in some regards, I hate to say it, they've hung on too long. They've kept the status quo for so long and it's created this now really weird dynamic where you're like, well, you haven't had that, that maturity, if you will, that curve, right? Like, okay, now we, you know, we, now we have to, we have to do this quickly. Right. And the question is for me is like, are businesses willing to do it? Are organizations willing to do it? This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. And special thanks to Ronell Hugh for the conversation today and for reminding us that great leaders don't have to have all the answers. 
If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of BraveCore LLC. Thanks for being with us.